Hey, what's up? It's Tom from Plain White Tees. Uh, I just launched a new solo project called Million Miler, super 80s themed, super fun. And I'm excited to partner up with Dueling Decades to give away my new album. So all you gotta do is be following Dueling Decades, follow me at Higgy Pop, follow my new solo project, Million Miler, and my record label, Humans Were Here, and you could win a copy of my new album, Millie, by Million Miler. I uh, also just launched a music video for one of my singles, Zuma Beach, and I've got a brand new video coming on November 15th for the song, She Ain't Coming Back. So make sure to check those out and uh, go win yourself an album. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know, but now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios and on Pod TV Live, it's another all-new Dueling Decades, the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back. I am Mark James, and this week we wrangle out a worst of November duel. I'll be competing with the worst of November 1984 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, representing the 90s better than Frosted Tips and Mom Jean Hips, say hello to Man Crush. Both those things are back, I think. <laughs> Especially the Mom Jeans. I've seen that a lot lately. But yeah, I have uh, the worst of no uh, November of 1995. And before we even get started, we, we do have Tom Higginson back again. And one of the things we're going to do is we're going to give away Tom's fantastic album, Millie, I actually got the copy right here. Oh, yeah. Yes, nice. It is. Uh, but one of the things we got to figure out is how we're going to do this. So I think what we'll do, uh, obviously, everyone's probably following at least our social medias already. So let's stick to Instagram, right? So uh, follow us at Dueling Decades. Follow Tom at Higgy Pop. Follow his new project. I think it's uh, it's million.myler.music, correct? You got it. Yeah, exactly. All right, do all three of those things, and then just cap it off by uh, shooting us a DM, so we know your name, and then that'll enter you, and we'll do it. Uh, what do you say, Mark? Like right after Thanksgiving, maybe? That sounds perfect. And we'll send Love this it. record Love out it. to you. Matter of fact, I have you sent me. Thank you very much, by the way. Uh, my daughter snagged the other uh, album, and it's hanging up in her room. <laughs> Uh, oh, it's, nice. part of, it's part of her aesthetic. Um, <laughs> but you also sent me the cassette too. So let's, let's throw both in there. Uh, let's do both. Uh, we'll give away the cassette. So you have something to play in your Camaro and uh, we'll <laughs> give away the album as well. Nice. Speaking of Camaros, you guys obviously watched my, uh, my video for Zuma beach. You guys are rocking the members only jackets. Did you see that freaking badass car I was driving in the video or what? Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, I said to my wife, I was like, I wonder if that's his because you had the Millie license plate. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> movie magic, that, that was all done in post. The license uh, plate was was not real. Yes, that was I, I did the, that video with uh, my buddy Ben Farron, an amazing director. 
And he's like, he's just got a knack for those little details that like no one else would even notice, but like they make such a huge difference, you know? So yeah, totally fake license plate uh, and not my car. Unfortunately, I rented the car just for the video shoot. Um, but man, I didn't want to give that thing back. It was so sweet. It ran so well. It was so fun to drive. My, my 12 year old son, uh, actually all the shots of me, like driving in the car, he's like ducked down in the back seat. Obviously you can't see him. But he was like loving it even more than me cruising around in that thing. T-tops down. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Those things have a lot of torque, though, right? It's not like like off the it line, was, not taking it, off. To, to, no, not at all. And it's loud as hell, too. It was like super loud, just chugging along. I think I need one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. But anyhow, we all need, everybody needs one. Everyone, yeah, everyone does. What, do you know what year that was? Was it an 80? Uh, I believe it was 81. Um, although my stepdad was like, no, that was an 82. I had an 81. You know, he was all like car <laughs> guy about it. <laughs> as long as you can get one but in the early eighties. Exactly. I'm sure they were all pretty similar back, you know, for a few years there. Pretty sweet. But yeah, I'll go back to mine. I have the worst of November, 1995. Also joining the show, bringing the super sucky sounds of the seventies is the media king of the North. Please welcome Joe Finley. Hi guys. Um, not a member here. Canadians can't be members, I guess. <laughs> and I guess what the deal really is, is that two guys are a little jealous that I already had Thanksgiving. Y'all suck. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's a shot. <laughs> and as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. You've already heard from him. He's the Grammy nominated frontman. Of the plain white tees. And of course, his new 80s inspired solo project, Million Miler, available now everywhere. All rise and welcome Judge Tom Higginson. Hello, hello. Good to be back, you guys. I love the, I love this this show, man. I'm, I'm so, so excited to do it again. Thank you for having me back. No, thanks for coming back, dude. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under dueling decades rules. The judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five dueling decades categories, movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each with rounds four and five worth two points apiece and in the event of a tie after all five rounds we'll go to a final wild card round remember duelers to review the show like subscribe and play along at home it's time for more decades. all right let's go right down to our guest judge for this episode mr tom higginson for the coin toss which will be between joe and man crush this week cool so I've got my my million miler cassette tape right here. I'm going to open it up and I'll, maybe I'll flip it. And how about side one? If it lands side one up, it'll be man crush. Side two up, it'll be Joe. How about that? That's perfect. Fair. That works. Here we go. Look at this beautiful blue. blue neon blue cassette tape. All right. Side two up. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe, you win the coin toss or the tape toss, we should say, you get to select our first category. Oh, and mercifully so, we're going to pick TV for the first round. Oh, boy. 
Okay, so obviously November, not a great month for uh, TV in general. You're not getting any debuts. You're not getting any finales unless something's getting canceled. Uh, not getting a whole lot of anything unless a balloon blows up at a Macy's Day parade, I guess. But I found something that was bad enough, and I want to talk about it because I didn't know it existed, but we all should have. Uh, I want to talk about a show from 1974. It ran for two seasons, 24 total episodes, and it was an animated version of a classic. And I want to talk about the new adventures of Gilligan. So Gil <laughs> Gil Gilligan's Island, the original cast, mostly back together. When you look at the IMDb, a lot of people are missing, but those characters show up on the show. So I don't really know what happened there. Um, but yeah, it's the same old stuff. Like you look at this plots and stuff and you're like, that would be ridiculous. And then you look at the plots of the live action show and you're like, yeah, lines up. Um, yeah. So I, I can't pick the whole thing as worst because it spread obviously beyond November of 74. So what I had to do is I looked at the four episodes that aired in November of 74 and just picked my worst one. So I took an episode called The Disappearing Act. And in that episode, Gilligan finds a magic kit because they always find like how did they not all find all this shit the first day <laughs> i think about castaway and i think like all those fedex packages all came up he wasn't finding those separately like months he's like oh where'd this one come from golly gosh you know they all showed up at once the this guy's years later still finding crap but he finds a magic kit and apparently it performs real magic cool but that's not all. There's also two fugitives who've been hiding out on the island and steal a working boat that was on the island. So again, working boat on the island that none of these people have found and used it to get off the island. And they all take off. So, well, yeah, exactly. But I mean, that place, when you when you look at the show as a whole, live action and cartoon, that place was lousing with boats. That just, no more boats than they knew what to do with, but they could never figure out how to get off the island. There's another episode in the same month where... They have a boat, they repair it, and they're getting ready to go. But then Lovey, who found, finds out that lead is particularly valuable right now, packs the whole boat with lead and it sinks. So, <laughs> so, that, so that's what we got going on. But to take a crazy, weird, silly show, albeit a classic, and add to it all the things that were already missing, like the Scooby-Doo sound effects and the whole Hanna-Barbera <laughs> look that they had going on. Uh, yeah, I give you The Adventures of Gilligan. Uh, this episode aired November 23rd, 1974. Nice. Now, was this supposed to be stuff that happened while they were all on the island, just to him alone? Or was this, did he get stranded there again? I don't know. It was it, I, it, it looks like it was just a continuation because they were all still there unless they wanted to celebrate the anniversary of them getting off the island with another three hour tour. And it went awry again. I didn't catch that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man crush. What did you bring for the television round? All right. So let's go to November 9th, 1995. And here's a show like Joe was saying before, like there's you don't get any shows that start. But you, you might get a show that ends. And this one did because here's a show that it ended after its seventh episode on CBS, they made 10. They only aired seven. And the thing is with this one, it wasn't a bad sitcom at all. It was just well ahead of its time. And I doubt many people remember the show. So I can come right out and tell you guys what the name is. And it was a show called Dweebs. And matter of fact, good luck finding this one. If you want to check it out, um, I was playing football. Uh, Friday nights in the fall 1995 so I never got to see this one either so I spent all last night trying to locate it and all I could find were portions of two episodes 
And I really want to see the rest of this. So if there's anyone out there that has this recorded or they know where you can find dweebs, shoot us a DM and let me know where I can get it or if I can get it from you or whatever, because I want to watch it. It's actually pretty good. So dweebs, the show, this featured Corey Feldman as one of the one of the characters as a dweeb, always wearing sunglasses, by the way, always on his face, never takes them off. Very weird. Then you had uh, Stephen Tobolsky. I think is his last name. Uh, it doesn't sound like a household name, but you've seen this guy. He's been in tons of things. And then it also had the late, great Peter Scolari on there, who just passed away yeah. just a few weeks back. And uh, interestingly enough, if you listen to our second episode with Andre Gower, then you know that Scolari was the guy that taught Andre how to juggle. Right. And uh, Andre told us the stories about, uh, you know, how amazing Peter Scolari was at juggling. So it just so happens one of the episodes that I found there, there was an episode about a party at somebody's house and they're all nerds. So they're kind of like recluses or whatever. And then all of a sudden they, they break out all these things that they learned when they were by themselves, hanging out by themselves as kids. And his skill was juggling and he starts juggling on the show <laughs> in that skit. And let me tell you, it was pretty damn impressive. It was, it was good shit. Uh, anyway, uh, this show, it's about five dweebs working in an IT company called Cyberbyte. And of course, they have an attractive, non-technical office manager who is played by uh, Farrah Fork, who was on Wings, which if you look at our Facebook tonight, we just posted that was uh, something that was yeah. played on Thursday nights back in, I think that was 1993 is what we did. Uh, but uh, if you look at, if you watch Dweebs or you want to watch it, it has all the hijinks that you would expect from shows like The IT Crowd, Workaholic, Silicon Valley. And it's the first show to ever tackle that subject. But the problem was this. This is 1995. So sure, like the Internet was a thing, but only 14 percent of Americans actually had a computer in their homes in 1995. And by wow. August of 2021, that number is 94.5 percent. So CBS, they took a gamble on this one. They lost. Had this show come out a decade later, it most likely would have been a huge hit. And I say that because Big Bang Theory, that's this show with a Halloween costume. It's the exact same show. You get a group of nerds. They hang around with a girl that's way out of their league. And she's like the connection that they have to the rest of the normal world. Same damn show. Uh, but it just it didn't work out for dweebs. It was well before its time. And it was canceled after seven episodes. And that last episode was November 9th of 1995. Nice. All right, gentlemen, uh, for my TV pick this week, I get to talk about a show that was a huge part of my TV viewing habits of a as a child. But now we only get to talk about it on Worst of Episodes because the show's star and creator ruined it for everybody by being a horrible human being. That's right, kids. It's time for an episode of The Cosby Show. <laughs> so in the pilot episode of The Cosby Show, Claire asks Cliff, why do we have four children? And he responds, because we didn't want five. So let's fast forward a few weeks to November 22nd, 1984, to the 10th episode of the series, where, surprise, they introduce the often forgotten fifth child, Sandra, in an episode titled Bonjour, Sandra, where she returns from Princeton and is planning a, tri a trip to Paris for the summer, and she wants to get her parents' permission. So the character of Sandra was created when Bill Cosby wanted the show to express an accomplishment of already having successfully raised a college-aged child. And the character was actually based on his eldest daughter, Erica, 
who is supposed to be about the same age as Sandra was in the show. Played by actress Sabrina LaBeouf, who almost missed out on the role because she's only 10 years younger than Felicia Rashad, who played her mother in the show. But ultimately, she won the role despite some stiff competition from uh, Whitney Houston and future Miss America Suzette Charles. Wow. So the character of Sandra would go on to marry Alvin, give birth to twins Nelson and Winnie, and have one of the worst apartments in TV history as well as drop out of law school to open a wilderness store in downtown Brooklyn. It's the debut of Sandra on The Cosby Show, November 22nd, 1984. Good dig. How many of you forgot that she was a Cosby kid? Be honest. Yeah. I definitely don't remember that, and I love The Cosby Show. So I'm trying to think who were the five then, because I was thinking Rudy, Theo, Denise, Sandra, and then the only one I'm thinking is Raven Simone, who wasn't hers. Vanessa. Vanessa. Yeah. I'm so sorry, Vanessa. All right, let's throw this one down to our guest judge for this episode, Mr. Tom Higginson, for his ruling on the television round. So because this is the worst, you guys are throwing me with the curve for this, the worst (laughs) episode here. Um, Honestly, all of these sound kick-ass, you know? As a kid, the Cosby show was was amazing, you know? Um, And yeah, I did not remember uh, the fifth child at all, so that's an interesting one. Um, let's see. I also am a huge Corey Feldman fan, obviously grown up in the eighties Goonies, you guys know is one of my favorite movies. Um, so I'm kind of bummed that I, that I missed out on dweebs, you know, all seven episodes. Yeah, I know. Well, I guess, yeah, it was pretty easy to miss, I suppose, but, but man, that sounds so cool. And then who doesn't love Gilligan's Island, you know? So the, the animated, you know, Gilligan's Island, I kind of remember that. Like maybe seeing some weird rerun as a kid or something. Um, I think he was yeah, on Scooby-Doo all... quite a bit though, right? What's that? Did yeah. they have Gilligan There's... show up on yeah. Scooby-Doo? They probably just read Oh, cells. maybe that's what I'm thinking. I th- yeah, that's, I, I'm kind of sure that happened. Yeah, you're probably right. Maybe that's where it's you know what's not clicking in my head i'm like wait i feel like i've seen that um so yeah okay so if i have to pick a worst um man obviously like i said cosby show was a hugely successful uh show gilligan's island you know it had its its uh its 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 moment in the sun i guess we got to go dweebs even though that's probably what i'm most interested in like trying to find and check out but Good I luck. guess Dweebs has to take it for the worst. Sweet. Good luck trying to find it, though. I'm dead serious. If anyone could come across it, maybe you have, maybe you used to record Friday nights on CBS for some ungodly reason, and you have that tape, let me know, because I'd love to convert that to digital to watch them all, because the, what I've seen of the two episodes were actually pretty funny. It's just, like I said, it was just well ahead of its time. People weren't ready for that yet. So I'll take it. Nice. Yeah. All right, man, Chris, you pick up a point, you jump out to the early lead, but more importantly, you take control of the board and get to select our next category. All right, so since uh, Mark started his TV round with a piece of shit, uh, I'll (laughs) go to the music round with a piece of shit. Uh, So we'll go uh, November 14th, 1995, and, you know, there's, there's no doubting this guy mega talented, but he's also one of the biggest scumbags on earth. 
and now he's sitting behind bars. So with that said, I'm not going to give him much due here, but I'll give you some of the lyrics from his second studio album that should have probably raised some eyebrows at the time. And knowing this dude's story now, I think these lyrics, they seem pretty gross, you know? Like, so I just have three excerpts. So one, this was a, a big song, uh, Down Low. So it's down low, down low, keep it, down low, down low, creeping on the down low. Nobody has to know. Kind of weird, right? Then you got, uh, you remind me of something. I just can't think of what it is. You remind me of my Jeep. I want to ride it. You remind me of my sound. I want to pump it. Girl, you look just like my cars. I want to wax it. And the other one just starts out with the first line. Baby, tell daddy what it is you want. And meh. It's the uh, the five times platinum self-titled album R. Kelly by <laughs> R. Kelly, which uh, actually hit number one on the Billboard 200. And I'm pretty sure everyone has heard the story about the court record showing that he married Aaliyah in 1994 when she was 15. He was 27. And then they got it annulled and all that stuff. Well, a lot of this album, when you look at it, there's a lot of songs besides the one that I just talked about. A couple, Those are three songs. But a lot of the other songs are about like a love interest that slips away. And that kind of makes sense now because that was 94. The whole Leah thing. And this album came out in 95. Kind of yeah. shitty. But I give you R. Kelly. R. Kelly. <laughs> wow. So I meet your you. You bring Bill Cosby. <laughs> yeah. I bring R. Kelly. Jeez. You guys. <laughs> All right, Joe Finley. What did you bring for the music round? Oh man, I don't have any, uh, I don't have any like lost pieces of shit in here, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> but I've got somebody uh, that some people are definitely mad at. Uh, I want to start with a quote from the article where I got this from. So this is actually a bit of music news uh, for you. And here is the quote. Whether this happened in the midnight hour, we're not 100% certain, but it seems when you combine assorted soul singers with alcohol, lethal weaponry, and a hunting trip in upstate New York, then occasionally trouble ensues, and on this occasion, it certainly did. So I want to take you to uh, November 21st in Andy's New York, where singer Wilson Pickett got a little drunk with his friends, the Isley Brothers, with whom he went on a uh, little bit of a hunting trip. And I guess he got a little belligerent, got a little angry, and the Isley Brothers and their entourage came out to call it, calm him down. He, I don't know, by summoning it, I guess, pulls out a Derringer and starts firing at a hotel room door. Nobody gets hurt. We're all good. The cops show up and arrest him. They also fine him for an additional rifle that they found in his car. Uh, eventually, all charges are dropped. I guess the Isleys were the only ones around, and they didn't file charges. The hotel people probably got paid off. But he gets away with it scot-free. But there's more. Because as I was reading about this, because I'm like, this is the craziest thing. I'd never heard about this in my life. Just as a tag at the end of this article, it was like, this is not the only time he's shot at the Isley Brothers. <laughs> and he brings up another time where he shot one of the Isley Brothers, it doesn't say who, in the face in the Netherlands. I read an, an, another article that says the exact same thing, but I have found nothing that follows up with that i have read every wikipedia page i looked up news i looked up anything there's nothing that actually supports that except two separate like nostalgia based articles that said he shot an isley brother in the face but don't get drunk around wilson pickett 
He's got guns floating around, it seems. November 21st in the Andes, New York. Wilson Pickett shooting hotel doors and whatnot. Damn. You know what's crazy? You brought that up. The song lyrics I read, Keep It On The Down Low, <laughs> the Isley Brothers are actually, they do that song with him. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. That's no hilarious. Shit. Whoa. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Uh, for my worst of music selection this week, I give you an album by one of my favorite artists, Mr. Frank Zappa. But this album, which was released on November 21st, 1984, does not include any of the Zappa hits like Montana, Don't Eat the Yellow Snow, or Valley Girl. I'll give you official release number 42 on Frank Zappa's Barking Pumpkin Records, titled Francisco Zappa. No, Frank Zappa did not change his name for this one. The album is made up of chamber music from Italian composer Francisco Zappa, who flourished between 1763 and 1788. Reproduced by Frank Zappa on the Sinclair, an early polyphonic digital synthesizer. So Frank would say about the album in an interview with Russ DeVault of the Atlanta Constitutional Journal, uh, November 24th, 1984. Uh, I know the album, titled Francisco, sounds like a joke, but it's real. He was a cello player from Milan who wrote string trios. He was one of the first touring musicians. He was on the road before the French Revolution. And it's quite possible I'm related to him, spiritually at the very least. <laughs> no use in going down the track listing on this album. All the song titles are actual and formal composition names like Opus Number no. 1, uh, Second Movement, Allergo Conbrio. And for all of you non-Italian speaking fans out there, Allergo Conbrio means with liveliness or spirit. So the album consists of Zappa's opuses one and four, 17 tracks in all, just about 38 minutes of music. So basically for this one, Frank Zappa finds an unpublished musician from the 18th century that he happens to share a same last name with, puts out an album of his music played on an early synthesizer. So Frank said about the album that it was his first digital recording in over 200 years. Uh, this one is mo more of the most unpalatable Zappa albums. It's strictly for collectors only, uh, but it would make one hell of a 16-bit video game soundtrack. So I give you Francisco Zappa, November 21st, 1984. Wow. Interestingly enough, Francisco Zappa is on Hump Bounce. No, I'm just kidding. That would be cool, though. Nice. Okay. Well, I will say as much as, yeah, R. Kelly is a piece of crap. Um, you know, he, that album was a hit album. So I would love to pick that, but I don't know. I'm sure I don't, I honestly don't, I wasn't a fan ever. So I don't know those <laughs> songs, but you know, uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip that one. And Joe, yours was a hell of a story, but it was kind of bordering on music. It was a, it was, you know, more of a news story than actually about the music. So I'm going to have to go with Mark on this yeah. one, Francisco Zappa. That's a hell of a story, but I mean, knowing Frank Zappa, it doesn't surprise me at all, but it's just, no. uh, it's an interesting little, uh, chapter in, in his book, you know, nice. how many albums did Zappa release? We're at this point, we're close to a hundred, I believe. I mean, a lot so of them wild. were released after his death, but uh, during his during his life, fifty or sixty, I believe. 
still insane. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I pick up a point in that round. I tie this game up with Man Crush. I get to select the next category. We're going to go to the movies round. Oh. All right. Released November 16th, 1984. I present to you a movie that is the worst, well, in kind of all the best ways. Written in just 10 days by writer-director Tom Eberhardt, the same guy who gave us classics like Captain Ron and Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. This movie starring Catherine Mary Stewart and a former guest on this show, Miss Kelly Maroney, as the ass-kicking sisters Regina and Samantha Belmont. It's the movie that beat Dune to the red dust craze of 1984 by just a few weeks. I give you Night of the Comet where a comet wipes out most of the life on Earth, leaving only a few survivors. And we decide to focus on two valley girls and their fight against cannibal zombies caused by the comet and a sinister group of scientists. So this was a movie that I seemed to find all the time on cable growing up as a kid, and it scared the crap out of me every single time, and I don't think I ever finished the movie. <laughs> what? But although a lot of people love this movie, it's, you know, it's one of those so bad it's good films. You know, there's still quite a few people out there who aren't on the bandwagon with this one. So let's focus on one of those individuals. So let's go to a review found in the News Journal out of Mansfield, Ohio, November 22nd, 1984, titled File This Film in the Trash Can by Joe Baltaki. He summarizes the article with Night of the Comet is Trash. But it's not even good trash. It's been made on a pathetic shoestring budget, which isn't necessarily bad. And it's also dull, 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 which makes it very bad. The ads are pitching it as if it were a larky teenage comedy, kind of fast times at Ridgemont High crossed with close encounters of the third kind. But there isn't a genuinely funny moment in the film. The film grossed $14.4 million in the U.S., on just a $700,000 budget. But like many of those titles that we talk about here on this show, it found its niche as a cult hit once it was released on VHS and on cable. So, and if B-movie special effects mixed with Valley Girls isn't your jam, this film also marks the major film debut of Mr. Nicolas Cage. So if that doesn't make it worse for you, I don't know what it does. So I give you Night of the Comet, November 16th, 1984. You never made it through that movie? Not until I was older. As a kid, I never finished it. Oh, man. Why did that person think it was supposed to be a comedy? I have no clue. Did they even watch the movie? <laughs> That's a terrible review. <laughs> terrible. That's a great movie. Daddy would have got a Susie's. Not to interject, because I, I, I want to keep my opinions to myself <laughs> so you guys all go, but I actually own that on blu-ray i've never watched it i've never seen it oh, but like that's a movie because i'm on like my 80s kick with like million miler and everything that's a movie that multiple people have told me like oh you got to see night of the comet and so i i bought it on blu-ray and i haven't watched it yet it's good you'll so, love it you'll love it nice that's, it's funny like some of those reviewers like i i see the same thing where you go through paper sometimes i'm like did you even watch the movie or did you make it through the movie or did you just go <laughs> Like, you went to the movie, you left, because that doesn't make any sense. There are some funny parts, but I think it's just, it's supposed to be like, a, you know, they're building the characters. It's not supposed to be 
the comedy. So it's, it's just bizarre. <laughs> it's definitely laughable. That. We'll put it that way. Maybe, <laughs> maybe at the time, the, the previews made it seem funny or something. Or maybe it was like a wacky voice in the preview or who knows. Yeah. Well, they did that with a lot of the zombie movies then. Like all, all those 80s zombies movies kind of had like a little, you know, a couple funny things in each one of those movies. Depending on, pretty much all of them did. Yeah, in this one it was it was the white eyes of the zombies and the sunken in face freaked me right out as a kid, man. The cop. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Joe, what did you bring for the movies round? Well, I brought um a whole new look at Dracula first of all, and uh and a whole new look at his whole backstory and a very confusing reason for its title so i'm going to give you a movie uh directed by paul morrissey and starring udo kier as uh, udo kier as the count himself uh blood for dracula but released in north america as andy warhol's dracula <laughs> we'll get to that <laughs> so anyways like i said it was written directed by paul morrissey udo kier plays uh plays count dracula it follows a sickly and dying dracula because this dracula needs a virgin's blood to drink to survive and as luck would have it, he's fresh out of virgins in Transylvania, it seems. So he heads to the one place his uh, his servant suggests to him that maybe going somewhere with a high Catholic population will deliver him some more young virgin girls. So off to Italy they go because they don't know that in Italy they bone. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he goes there and he finds a, a wealthy landowner. And uh, in gaining friendship with him, he agrees to marry one of his daughters off to them and assures him that all four of them are virgins. Well, all four of them are not because they took turns banging the handyman named Mario. Love that there's a handyman named Mario in this and not taking on Donkey Kong. But uh, <laughs> but anyways, he took he took all of their virginities and he ends up being the one who uh, uncovers Dracula's secret and helps kill him in the end. Uh, Dracula does try to drink two of their blood. He basically decides two of them aren't worth the effort. And he goes with two of them and he drinks their blood. And then he actually gets weaker, realizing that they're not virgins. So that is the whole premise of this. Get virgins. And it just doesn't work out for poor Dracula. He doesn't seem to know where to go. Maybe those Valley girls on the comet, they, they probably would have been virtuous, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's what I got from November 6th, 1974. Andy Warhol's actually, I I'm going to go back for a second. Cause I didn't explain why it's Andy Warhol's Dracula and neither did they is the problem. They actually had to go to Andy Warhol. He is not a producer on this. He did not shoot the film. He did not do anything. And so they asked Andy Warhol, what was your contribution to this film that makes the movie named after you? And his answer, I attended the parties. <laughs> That's it. Uh, Paul Morrissey has a very uh, close association with Andy Warhol. He's part of the whole factory. Uh, and I guess they just thought that was the best way to sell it when it got to... Uh, to North America, but Andy Warhol had literally nothing to do with this movie. It was just a little selling ploy. So I give you uh, November 6th, 1974, Andy Warhol's Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> and those girls were not virtuous because uh, Mary Catherine Stewart actually has sex in the oh, very yeah. beginning. Oh, Valley girls are always yep. giving it up. Yeah. Right before the common hits. So <laughs> she's safe. 
Well, while Dracula was in Italy, if he would have hooked up with the followers of Francisco Zappa, there he would have found his virgins. <laughs> it all ties together. <laughs> all right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the movies round? All right, so let's go November 3rd, 1995. And when you have Joel Silver, this guy, this is the legendary producer behind such action classics, Die Hard, The Matrix, Lethal Weapon, Commando, and Predator. You, know, you, you got Joel Silver. You have all those movies. So typically, you get a big-name actor to go along with it. And in this case, we got a movie that Sylvester Stallone signed on to do. But what we actually got is what happens when <laughs> Stallone just decides to walk away from the movie. And uh, with Stallone's history of, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, his history of winning Razzies over like that 15-year period, uh, it strangely makes a lot of sense that this movie took home three Razzies without Stallone even being in the movie. He left the project in like 1994, so they won it without him. So uh, what they ended up getting was a B movie that was posing as an A movie. It's as simple as that with this movie is basically what happened. But we have to ask ourselves, like, why Stallone wanted to do this movie in the first place? Maybe it was money. Uh, I, but I say that because this movie, it's based upon the book A Running Duck by Paula Gosling. Well, this is a favorite of this show, the 1986 canon cult classic Cobra, which stars Sylvester Stallone. That movie was based upon the book A Running Duck by Paula Gosling. The same book. Uh, matter of fact, Paula Gosling, she even has writer credits for both of these movies. And the one thing that both these films share is that neither one really makes any sense. Like, why exactly is everyone trying to kill the lead lady? Like, the story in either one of these movies is just botched. All right. So perhaps Stallone asked the same question and he bolted to do other projects that year. Because, uh, of course, in 95, he did Judge Dredd and he did Assassins, for example. Both better movies than this one. So with Stallone out. Joel Silver, he turns to Keanu Reeves, who just did Speed, and he's like, hey, you want to do this movie? And he said no. So uh, why not? He's like, I'll bring in William Baldwin to become uh, like my new Bruce Willis. Same thing that I did with Die Hard. Let's bring in William Baldwin. He, he could do it. Done. Now, with Stallone off the table, what lead actress do they get to play the damsel in distress? Gina Davis, maybe. Perhaps Julianne Moore. Possibly Drew Barrymore. Or maybe even go back 80s throwback style. Let's go Brooke Shields, right? No, none of them were interested in doing this movie. So instead, Joel Silver, he just opens his checkbook. He just signs a blank check and he hands it to the highest paid supermodel on the planet in the 90s, Cindy Crawford. So now they have William Baldwin and Cindy Crawford together in this movie. When it was all said and done. This was a $50 million flop. This is a $50 million movie in 1995 that took in $11.5 million at the box office. It's roughly $20 million in 2021, so it, it bombed. And this is her first and only lead role in a movie. Like, she did, like, spots through the years, but she usually would end up playing herself. She never played another role after this. This was it. Uh, when it was all said and done, uh, Cindy Crawford, she won three Razzies for this one. Uh, she got Worst Actress, Worst New Star, and Worst On-Screen Couple. 
with uh, William Baldwin. So that's pretty impressive. I'm sure Stallone was super proud of that, kept the lineage going. Uh, but seriously, though, if you watch this movie with the volume kind of like way down, not all the way off, but just with way down, it's actually not that bad. But you may want to keep the volume up slightly for some awesome Cindy Crawford lines throughout the movie. Like one that I remember, uh, she's talked to a computer geek in a computer store, and she says to him in a really sexy voice, I was hoping to demo your unit. <laughs> she was trying to get this guy to do whatever. Uh, it's, it's like the cringiest scene. Uh, and uh, just stay tuned for one of the most bizarre sex scenes which happens after uh, her and William Baldwin uh, start train hopping to get away from the bad guys onto a cargo train. Uh, and it, It's dimly lit and it goes on for far too long, but you do get a topless shot of Cindy Crawford. So at least that's in the movie, uh, but this is the movie fair game. And that was released uh, November 3rd, 1995. Wow. Dude, you're not going to believe this. I've never seen that movie, but when you were, when you said Cindy Crawford, for some reason, I was like, fair game. Fair like, game. I remembered that. Yeah. Like, I think we all did. Yeah. I yeah. saw this in the movies. I was one of that. I was part of the 11.5 11 million. million dollars. <laughs> God. And it was far better when I saw it in 1995. That actually had to rent it last night. I don't own this one. Uh, so I had to get it <laughs> off Amazon Prime for $3.99. And man, the dialogue is the worst. She's She's just like such a robot. Cause she's not an actress <laughs> and right. they were having her do all this stuff, but the action and stuff is great in the movie. It's just the story and everything else. And the fact that I never knew that about Cobra and this sharing the, the book with uh, Paula Gosling. So that's just wild that yeah. he was going to do both these movies. Like, what are, what are you thinking? I'll take you one further <laughs> because this is actually the third opportunity he had to make that. Book. Oh, no shit. Beverly Hills oh, Cup's true. original script was based on that book. And when he left the project, they reworked the entire script to fit a comedy for Eddie Murphy. And he took that script and uh, brought it over to uh, to make Cobra. Cannon. And yep. And what was hilarious about that was he actually tried to get a like he tried to get a writing credit for the movie. And for the book, <laughs> like because they were they were well, he should at this point yeah, they were re-releasing <laughs> the book, and he said his name should also be on it because people are only buying the book because of the movie. So really, three times wow. this movie could have been his. He walked off it twice. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, he's he's still alive. He's still kicking. And yeah. if it, well, this will come out next week on Wednesday. But today is Veterans Day, and today. The director's cut of Rocky Four was released to theaters one night only with an extra 40 minutes of footage. So he should get the writing credit for that one. And we got to talk to Robert <laughs> Tepper about that one again. But uh, yep. So uh, fair game. All right, Tom, what's your verdict on the movies round? Um, okay. Well, I will say fair game sounds pretty terrible. But a a topless Cindy Crawford that might not so, not be so bad. We well, also and, get uh, William uh, like, Baldwin's like, butt during that. Yes. Scene. <laughs> yeah, William Baldwin <laughs> might offset that slightly. Um, but you know, um, at least it sounds like there's maybe a little bit of a budget. It might not be like you said, turn the volume down. It's not a total wash. No. I guess. Yeah, it's all right. Um, and I will say that, like Night of the Comet, like we talked about earlier. Um, I don't know. I got a feeling that I'm going to love that one. I, I have to watch it still. 
Um, so Joe, I think you're taking this one with Andy Warhol's Dracula, <laughs> especially because I love the fact that they literally just used Andy's name just as a marketing tool and he had nothing to do with the movie. That's so crazy. But yet it's kind of so Andy Warhol, so it makes sense, you know? No doubt. All right, Joe Finley, you tie up this game at one point apiece, but more importantly, you're going to take control of the board heading into our first two-point round. Where are we going next, man? All right, well, let's take it right to the news round, I think. News, my favorite. Right? <laughs> it's going to be a rare time that we finish with hot products. It'll be fun. But um, uh-huh. I want to take you to November 13th, 1974. A young man named Ronald DeFeo enters Henry's bar and yells, Help me, I think my mother and father are shot. He leads a small group of the uh, bar patrons back to his home where they find his mother, his father, and four of his siblings, well, his all four of his siblings, found dead from shotgun wounds face down in their beds. Uh, this took place in an interesting city. It took place in Amityville, New York. So he was charged with the murder of his entire family, pleads insanity, saying that he heard the voices of his family plotting against him and he had no choice but to kill him. He was uh, convicted in 1975, sentenced for 25 years to life. Um, He told after his conviction, he started telling a lot of varying stories, saying he used a different gun, saying his mother actually killed everybody. And then he just killed his mother, but didn't want him, but didn't want to sully his mother's name. So he took the credit and a lot of different crazy uh, things like that. He ends up spending the the rest of his life in prison. He actually died in March of this year uh, in prison. So uh, I guess we don't have to worry about that anymore. But. Stories were told because we know the name Amityville. It is not unknown to us. This story spawned the book and later the movie, the Amityville horror in which a family moves in after a series of gruesome, after a gruesome uh, mass murder took place in it. That murder being the DeFeo family murders. And then they go a little supernatural beyond that when, you know, the the rest of the movie ensues. So, I mean, it, it's not related directly to them besides just the fact that that's the house. Uh, Amityville 2 actually leans a little bit more into that. So you actually uh, deal with the Montelli family, who's supposed to be based on the DeFeos themselves. So a really crazy, dark story with um, a kid. He's the oldest of the kids, but a kid killing his entire family, which spawns two horror movies, well, actually countless horror movies, if you think there's tons of Amityvilles out there and remakes and whatnot. Uh, but that's what I got for you from November 13th, 1974. The you Amityville this round just for the, uh, for the Ryan Reynolds reboot alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a question for you. Do you happen to know it was November 13th? Was it, did it happen to be a Friday? Do you know? It doesn't say. That's something we could look up really quick, though. Yeah, that's huh, an easy that'd one. That'd be interesting. November 1974 calendar, 13th was a Wednesday. Oh, Wednesday. We blew it. Uh, well, you <laughs> lose. <laughs> Son of a bitch. You know, what's, you know what's messed up, too? That house that uh, they took, you know, the creepy windows in the front of that house, right? Yeah. They've, uh, yeah. they've closed those in on the house. Whoa. So it doesn't really? look like the house anymore. Yeah. Ooh. Now the people inside feel more claustrophobic. Great idea. Yeah. I believe I've seen that house 
um it's isn't that like on long island kind of right yeah yeah i, I was doing a working on a record out there and um yeah like the, the people i was working with like drove me past it and was like oh you know that's the house or something so i don't know if it was actually but it was you know i've got a little tie-in to that story it looks i also my son now. Yeah. my son um was he was under the impression that the conjuring movies were somehow related to that story but i feel like in those movies that house was kind of more like isolated or something and not just like on a suburban block or whatever right, i don't know yeah. so he might be making that up <laughs> well according to the defeos there's only one way to handle that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right man crush what did you bring for the news round all right so nobody died in mine so uh, we'll go uh november 6 1995 and as a diehard fan of a shitty sports franchise this one stings a little bit uh, this was the shocking announcement that was made, and the entire state of Ohio was just sick to their stomach. And uh, when Art Modell, he didn't intend his first Browns game in 35 years, everything came crashing down. It was reality to all those fans. And interestingly enough, the day after Modell's sickening announcement, which I'll get to in a minute, they played the Houston Oilers, who were also rumored to be moving to Nashville, which they ended up doing like a year after. Uh, but that day, the Browns lost 37 to 10. I think it was Eric Zier threw like three uh, touchdowns. I think one was like a pick six. I think I remember watching that on TV. Uh, but that news itself, like they had Jim Brown there. You know, he was always there. It made him sick. He was like, I feel sick to my stomach. And that bad news was that the Browns were moving to Baltimore, uh, which is crazy enough because that is a city that the same exact Thing happened to them 11 years prior when the Colts picked up and moved to Indianapolis. Uh, but this this was kind of like a visceral impact. It had impact on the entire league. Uh, it all started because uh, there was rumors at Tampa, the Bucks were going to move to Baltimore. So Art Modell, he, he wanted to pull the string as, as fast as he could. Uh, the Oilers were looking to move. The Cardinals were looking to move. But the Browns moving hurt more than all the other potentials. I mean, this is a classic NFL franchise in a blue collar city. And just uh, like my own personal feeling and being a Jets fan, you, you sit in the cold for these teams and you watch these teams and they suck year in and year out, but you're a diehard fan. And to have the owner just pick it up and move it elsewhere. That's just like a punch in the gut. It's just awful. And uh, all that happened because, I think it was November 5th, actually. That's when the press conference was. And uh, it happened at Camden Yards in Baltimore. Nobody even knew about this. Modell just made the announcement with uh, the people over there in Baltimore that uh, they would be moving to Baltimore in 1996. And the city of Cleveland, they were devastated. And they started creating, like now, of course, the whole thing with the Let's Go Brandon going on. They had a motto for, uh, for Art Modell back then. There was Muck Fodell. So it was kind of like a, a fuck art motel and people were like wearing these shirts and uh, to make matters worse after this whole thing. So they moved there in 96, right? Within four years, the Ravens win their first Super Bowl in the year 2000. And uh, that was uh, the Browns came back in, I think it was 99. So this was their second year and they went three and 13 that year watching the Ravens, which was their former franchise win a Super Bowl. And then win it again in 2013 
Now, the Browns have not won a, a championship since 1964. That's actually the year before the Super Bowl began. So, like, <laughs> since they moved, the Ravens have won two. They still haven't won any. So, it's just such a kick in the balls. And uh, when uh, Art Modell died, I think it was 2012, every team in the league had somebody attending his funeral just to pay their respects, except for the Browns. And wow. But the... The thing was that it was Art Modell's son who asked the Browns not to do so because he figured that, you know, like it would just be bad, bad publicity altogether because they still hated him. Matter of fact, there was uh, there was one Browns fan. His name is Paul Serbo, who drove all the way from Ohio to Maryland, where uh, Modell was buried just to piss on his grave and then posted <laughs> the video on YouTube for everyone to see it. So to put it gently, like Art Modell was and is still despised in the city of Cleveland. And I definitely feel their pain. But yeah, this is when uh, the Cleveland Browns ended up. The announcement was made that they were moving to uh, to Baltimore. And if you watch the last game of the season in December, uh, which the Browns actually ended up winning, they beat the Bengals in that last game. The fans ripped the stadium apart like they were because it was an old shitty stadium is old municipal stadium in Cleveland. They hadn't done anything to it in probably decades. And they were just ripping seats out. People were leaving with their seat. They were like, hey, I, I've been a season ticket holder for 30 years. I'm taking this with me. And people were. And I watched footage of it today. People were devastated. There was a guy that was sitting in his chair for like two hours after the game ended because he was just in shock and just the awe of them moving out. So, yeah, nobody died, but it sure felt like somebody did. <laughs> the city of Cleveland died. Yeah. yeah. At least for a couple of years. I mean, they did end up getting their team back, but still haven't won anything. And the thing that sucked too is that team in, in uh, 1995, they were actually looked at like they were going to make the playoffs and kind of make a deep run. And obviously they didn't. And they had Bill Belichick was a coach there. And hmm. look what happens. That guy. Yeah, seriously. That guy. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, for my news this week, let's go to a summary of an article uh, by Fred Bayless, Associated Press writer, November 29th, 1984. You know, it's November, the start of the holiday season, so we're starting to see the articles trickle out with the do's and don'ts of the holiday season. So this, this article is titled, Attorney Names 10 Worst Toys. The article talks about how each Christmas season, attorney Edward Schwartz hunts the nation's toy stores looking for the most dangerous toys and other playthings. So, and he's done this since 1971. He's a personal injury attorney and has named his 10 worst toys for the season, listing hazardous items. He says hide potential for mutilation and death within deceptively cute and cuddly toys. He says there are booby traps out there. The toys are different, but the risks are all the same. Then he went on to say that government figures linking 120,000 injuries a year to toys is far too low. But then even one injury to a child is too much if it can be avoided. So the standouts for me in this article of all the toys that he picked was uh, the first one called Straight Kick. It's a padded plastic foot that kicks with the push of an accordion-like device. You literally like squeeze it like a pair of scissors and a foot comes out and kicks straight. So, Swartz says the toy serves no other purpose than to encourage hitting each other. So, uh, the next item on here is the Get Along Gang Play Figures, sold by American Greeting Corp. 
Swartz says the small stuffed animals and figures can easily be beheaded, exposing a sharp metal spike. Uh, then we have Bloodsuckers, marketed by Marshawn Incorporated. The scary fun pen, resembling a flying insect, gives the appearance that you are drawing blood from somebody's arm. Uh, <laughs> the article says that Schwartz then took a new step on Tuesday, circulating a wanted poster for the Play family, small figurines sold by Fisher Price. Swartz says the toys have been link linked to deaths of three children who have swallowed them in near suffocation and brain damage of a fourth. So, for my news this week, I give you Edward Schwartz, the man who is taking all the fun out of Christmas. <laughs> now, meanwhile, you had 1984, which is like the prime years of us riding our bikes downhill with no helmets <laughs> and nothing else. Funny you should mention that, because Mr. Edward Schwartz actually represented some of the families that had children have on these unfortunate accidents in the response that the toy companies gave back where, you know, out of the millions of kids that play with these toys, two or three have gotten injured where most kids play with things that are far more dangerous on a daily basis. So. <laughs> Lawn darts. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's kind of sounds like he was, like the whole point of the article was to like get some business for his, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. to, so he could represent some, some people. Well, yeah. He has written a few books on the subject. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, so I, um, I don't know. I feel like, how do you, you know, it, it's, I know it's supposed to be the worst story, right. But all these news stories um, were kind of bad in their own ways, of course, you know, Um but I don't know. I mean, the Cleveland Browns totally sucks. And I'm sure as a fan, you would, it would, it would have been pretty devastating at that moment. And, you know, the, the toy guy, like I said, to me, that's just more annoying that he's just kind of like, yeah, trying to kill everybody's fun and, uh, you know, try to cash in on it. But the Amityville story, I mean, that's kind of a classic. Everybody knows it. And I mean, that's a, that's, that's shit. Even think about that, you know, even you telling the story, Joe was like, gave me chills. Like, oh man, that's just so, you know, it, it's terrifying to even think that that could happen, you know? So, so I got to go Joe again. I think that's, is that two in a row for, for Joe there? Yeah. Come back kid. I think so. Yeah. All right, Joe, you jump out to the lead in this one. Heading into our final round, which we've already determined is going to be the Hut Products round. Uh, would you like to go first, or would you like to defer to myself or Man Crush? Oh, that's a great question. I've never actually been in this position. Um, <laughs> I am going to defer to Mark. Oh, all right. I should have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I'm pretty excited about this week's Hut Product pick, because in the history of the show, I think this is the first time I have ever found a local product made right here in Southside, Virginia. So let's go to an article in the Columbian, Missourian newspaper dated November 14th, 1984, where the title reads, In Long Haul, It's Truckers by a Nose. Out of Chase City, Virginia, a new fragrance for America's 2.5 million truckers. A smell truckers can call their own is appearing in truck stops as part of a new push by the people who introduced jeans for truckers. Masculine, fresh, and crisp, 
said Marshall Bank, designer of the jeans for truckers, that generated $10 million in sales since their introduction only two years ago. What we've done, said Bank, is really created a smell that truckers can call their own. And the name of the new scent? Long Haul. Should come as no surprise, because the fragrance is named after the Chase City firm that made the blue jeans. Fragrance sprayers are being placed at 12 strategic locations in truck stops, and 50,000 scented postcards are being sent this week to wives of truckers, Banks said. <laughs> Last weekend, 350 truck stops where the jeans were sold received their first shipments of the cologne just in time for the Christmas rush. Banks describes the smell of the cologne as clean quality that features a deep blend of woods, moss, and that kind of gives it that lasting character. Banks <laughs> Bank says the scent, though, is not for everybody. He says the fashionable Bloomingdale's rejected it, and uh, they felt it just you know wasn't for their customers. Bank actually credits this invention to his wife, who said they came up with the idea once when they stopped on the side of the road to help a trucker who she said was a dead ringer for Robert Redford, but was a little bit of a shame that he only smelled like cheap drugstore aftersave, she says. Uh, Long Haul Cologne will sell for about $16 for about four ounces of it. Uh, it was sampled recently at truck stops outside of Richmond, Virginia, to mixed reviews with one person saying, and I quote, Generally, I only get to shower every other day, and this doesn't smell too bad, said trucker Don Starvey of Leftingsburg, Ohio. But I don't know what my wife would think. She might want to know who I've been running around with. So... <laughs> It's long haul cologne. Get it before it's gone. November 1984. What a ringing endorsement. <laughs> Smells okay. Smells okay. <laughs> My wife might be concerned who I'm running around with because, you know, the mossy, musky smell. It's better than balls. <laughs> uh, when you said that it just reminded me of moss man from he-man oh, that's exactly what it. i thought mm. of. <laughs> yeah. yes. who wouldn't want to smell like that <laughs> all right man crush what did you bring for the hot products round all right i i wish i had that that was a good one it's uh november 17th 1995 uh and this is back before we all complained about facebook and twitter and instagram and uh you know, we had this site was basically like a social media site. It was like one of the first ones. And I'm pretty sure most of us were on it at this point, or at least one point in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s. And I was shocked to see that it's still around today, especially since everyone dropped this site like a bad habit. Uh, probably once like MySpace came out in like, what is it, 2004-ish. Uh, but they've been spamming the world for the past uh, 15 plus years. Or at least they probably were spamming back in 1995, but they've been definitely doing it through the 2000s. Uh, do you guys remember getting these emails from classmates.com? They would send you these emails, and the emails would say, regardless if you were on the site or not, uh, you would get an email saying something like, a former classmate is trying to reach you. <laughs> yes. And you would be like, oh, totally. Yep. You'd be like, oh, you know, some sucker out there would click the link just to see if, like, they were like, oh, the hottest girl in my senior class. Maybe it's her. Maybe she's looking for me. <laughs> and uh, the only way you'd find out who it was is if you paid 15 bucks for three months of access to the site. Only then would you find out that, in fact, 
no one was trying to find you because after you would do it, they'd be like, yeah, there's there's no connection. And you would just see whoever <laughs> signed up from your high school or whatever would be on there. But they're not looking for you. They just got your shit. And that was it. Uh, but then once you signed up, you know, you're paying. And then it took like an act of Congress to cancel your account. God forbid, if you wanted a refund, that wasn't going to happen either. It just was not going to happen. So these scams, they actually eventually led to a class action lawsuit where classmates, they agreed to pay out $2.5 million to its subscribers for the reasons I just mentioned before. Then they were sued again in 2010 for those. Do you guys remember these? It was like the um, you would buy something online, right? And then after your purchase, they would do these discounts for uh, other yeah. sites. So you would buy like a pair of shoes. I'm just going to throw a site out there, even though they probably didn't do it. Let's say you were on Zappos and you bought you know, a pair of shoes. After you were done at checkout, it would say, hey, would you like to sign up to uh, classmates.com? Uh, memberships only one penny. And you, eh, okay, that sounds like a good deal. So you'd sign up. Well, at the end of the 30 days, you were renewed at the full price. And you kept getting renewed for the full price every subsequent month thereafter until you decided to try to cancel it. Try to figure out where your login is or whatever. But anyway, in that one, they agreed to pay $2.1 million for that lawsuit. Uh, so this was one of the first social media sites all in one, uh, but also an enormous scam at the time. Uh, the company was sold a couple times over the years, especially over the past like 15 years or so. And now it's owned by a company called People Connect Holdings, which actually ends up being the parent company of Intellis. And if you've ever worked for a company before and you try to hire somebody, they're the ones that do background checks. They also do uh, like reverse phone number searches online and all kinds of shit like that. So obviously don't fall into the trap of signing up to classmates.com because I'm sure Intellis is just using that information and they've already been sued like numerous times. So do it at your own peril, but at least uh, on classmates.com, you had a chance back in 1995 to see a yearbook or something. I, I don't know. I don't remember what was on it at that point, but uh, this was the launch of classmates.com. Were you guys on this one? Yes. You were not on classmates. I, I never signed up for the paid account. I signed up for the free account because free account. I used to get those emails nonstop. Yeah. yeah. Someone's trying to look for you. Oh, sweet. Who is it? Well, see, I always threw the bullshit flag on that because those people didn't want to talk to me in high school. They certainly don't want to talk to me now. <laughs> well, the big irony is I kept getting those emails, but my thing was I was still in high school at the time. So it was like, <laughs> I was like, if they want me, they know where to find me. I'm in math, baby. Yeah, right in the hallway. <laughs> All right, Joe, why don't you wrap up this one? What did you bring for the hot products round? All right. Well, I bring you a really interesting one. Um Probably of all the hot products I did, I right off the bat, it's concert tickets. Probably from a standpoint of anticipation, I could not imagine a more anticipated concert at this particular time. Uh, 1974, so we remember that band, The Beatles, right? Hey, they were, they were a little something-something yeah. something in the 60s. Um, between 1966 and 1974, they never set foot on American soil to do a, to do a tour for the first time after their breakup, a beetle was going to be on North American soil doing a tour 
George Harrison starts his George Harrison and Friends North American tour, also called the Dark Horse Tour, uh, November 2nd, 1974. That began in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, and he played alongside Ravi Shankar for most of those shows. Uh, so just the sheer excitement. Yeah, he's not the favorite Beatle, but he's the only Beatle, and we're going to get him. So <laughs> this thing sold out everywhere. Uh, it, the concert itself, or the tour itself, makes about $4 million from back then. Uh, about 750,000 people come to the shows. And uh, it just did not go well for poor... Uh, George, he had just come off a, just a marathon of recording sessions and rehearsals and all these things. And his voice was destroyed. So the voice that he heard, that people heard was not the voice that they were used to hearing. He was raspy. He was not in great shape. And on top of that, this tour, he was doing copious amounts of cocaine, according to an article in Rolling Stone, which I'm told... Not great for the voice. I'll do some research on that another time when <laughs> when the podcasts start making more money. But um, <laughs> but the thing was, on top of all of that, so you're already disappointed in the performance. You've been looking forward to this for over a decade, and you're not getting what you wanted. Now add to that the fact that, A, he spent a lot of his time just shit-talking the Beatles. Uh, he did a... a, a uh, uh, press conference right before the tour started he talked about how he would never he the beatles were an okay band the bass was eh, it was fine he said he would never be in another band with paul mccartney again he joined one with john lennon in a heartbeat but never with mccartney uh he wrote he sang a song called i don't believe in or with lyrics that say i don't believe in the beatles but he took some of the songs for which he was most famous, like uh, When My Guitar Gently Weeps, and he changed the lyrics for this tour. So he, uh, so the lyric was now, while my guitar pretends to, or tries to smile, was the new lyric. <laughs> so changing the old favorites, doing all that, and then some nights just not feeling it, just deferred most of his time to Ravi Shankar. So you paid for a Beatle and you got a nice sitar, well, you got an extended sitar solo. Um it went so poorly for him, other than the financial success of it, that he didn't tour again for 17 years. Wow. And when he did tour, he didn't come anywhere near North America. He toured in Japan with Eric Clapton. So hmm. this was a concert that had everybody excited and in the end left everybody disappointed and nobody more than him to the point where he didn't show his face for a long time. So I give you George Harrison and Friends or the Dark Horse Tour, which some critics called the Dark Horse Tour, H-O-A-R-S-E, because of his voice. <laughs> um, that's all started November 2nd, 1974. Wow. Okay. Well, huge Beatles fan. Uh, my son is named Lennon. But I, uh, I got to say that, that that's a tough one because it's like, man, would you... Like he was probably, I mean, 74, that is like, that's not far after the Beatles, you know, that's only a couple of years after they broke up. So you got to think maybe, yeah, he was probably a lot of drugs, probably a lot of uh, maybe a little bit of depression because, you know, it certainly wasn't his uh, idea to break up the Beatles, I'm sure, you know, so he's probably dealing with that aftermath. 
Um, and again, John will be fine. Paul will be fine, you know, but George, I don't, you know, like he's probably kind of struggling to find his way. Uh, but it's funny that like the, the, the course of history has kind of erased that moment, you know, like you don't really get that. I mean, I've seen Paul McCartney play a few times live and he always talks about, uh, you know, lo very lovingly about George Harrison. He plays, uh, something, on a ukulele and sings that in honor of George and everything. Um, so I'm sure they were on okay terms, you know, through time. But like I said, it was probably, a, probably a few years there where they were all like, fuck those guys or, you know, <laughs> yeah. all kind of dealing with the, the end of the Beatles. Um, but that being said, also, it's like, I don't care if you went to that show and it sucked and you hated it, you still went to that show and that's pretty badass, you know? Um, and then I'm going to say class classmates, classmates right, yeah. Um, I mean, that, that is, that is technically the worst, you know, because, you know, it's a, kind of a scam and it's total bullshit and, you know, a really shitty product. Um, but you know, at that time, maybe the internet, you know, it's like kind of the wild west, you know, it was just kind of starting oh, up. Sure. There were yeah. probably no rules and regulations. So I don't know. They, they were able to scam people. It totally sucks and total bullshit. Um, and crazy that you said are the, the, the company is still going at it's this point. Supposedly has like 70 million subscribers. Ugh, supposedly. That's disgusting. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in, in this one, I've got to, I've got to go with long haul. And honestly, <laughs> I kind of, again, maybe it's my, you know, uh, my, uh, rose colored glasses for the eighties, but I think long haul sounds fucking awesome. And I kind of want to <laughs> smell it. And I kind of, I would, I would use, I would yeah. use long haul, you know, it like, goes in the Camaro. Still... Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Put it in the next, in the next, you know, I want to, I want people to be able to smell the next million miler video, not just see it, you know? <laughs> so yeah, uh, I, I guess Mark, I guess you in this one, Maybe not the worst product, but just it, it sounds like so cool to me that I just had to go with nice. Sorry. Awesome. All right. Well, you know <laughs> what that means? This game's tied between me and Mr. Joe Finley. So we're going to go to a quick wild card round to decide this one. Uh, I'll go first on this one. Uh, see, for my wild card round, I'm actually going to bring another movie. Uh, this one was released on November 16th, 1984. And it's a movie where a disabled musician thinks that people are treating her differently because of her disability. So she goes to a ski resort with her leg in a cast to test that theory and to find love. Uh, this is Just the Way You Are, starring Christy McNichol, uh, Tim Daly from Wings, and Mr. Robert Carradine from Revenge of the Nerds. So the, the production for this movie was actually delayed by a full year. Uh, because Christy McNichol developed a chemical imbalance and she couldn't continue filming. She, and this happened like two weeks into production. Uh, so the premise of this one is a little far-fetched for me. She thinks that people treat her differently, so she goes to the ski resort, but she puts a cast over the, over the uh, prosthetic, and it's pretty predictable. Of course, she ends up finding love in this one. Uh, but I did find a review written by the great Gene Siskel out of the News Journal of Mansfield, Ohio, November 22nd, 1984, where he just rips this one at the end saying that, you know, if you're going to put out a movie that tackles the uh, 
the hard issue of learning to uh, to deal with life despite of a handicap, you might want to face the problem squarely as you hope the character will. And uh, Siskel goes on to say that just the way you are doesn't do that. And he says that it might be a comedic leg brace on a serious motion picture. Hmm. So I give you the absolute failure just the way you are, <laughs> starring Christy McNichols. Uh, the movie has a 5.9 on IMDb with just 873 ratings. <laughs> Solid. <laughs> All right, Joe Finley, what did you bring for the wild card round? All right, well, I'm going to bring you a movie as well, and it is going to be uh, a movie that Roger Ebert call- gave one out of four stars, <laughs> calling it scary trash. And uh, uh, the uh, Times rec- uh, the Times re- uh, record uh, also leaned on this one pretty hard, saying that the special effects were so juvenile that they were laughable. I give you Beyond the Door, released November 21st, 1974. So it's about an expectant mother who uh, starts to act a little different, gets some mood swings, which not unusual, uh, has some vomiting, not unusual, but her head kind of spins around as well. That's pretty unusual for a pregnancy, last I checked. Um... She starts getting into a few things that we know. We've seen the head twisting around, levitating off the bed, and the projectile vomiting. We've all seen that before. And it turns out this lady is possessed by a demon. Uh, a mysterious man named Dimitri shows up, convinces her husband, who had just agreed with his wife to abort the baby, and then tell the wife changed her mind and lost her and went crazy on him, uh, decided she needs to be sequestered in a room where nobody has access to her so she can safely give birth to the baby and it'll keep her safe. And it turns out that Dimitri, spoiler alert, is an ex-lover of the woman who is also a Satanist and arranged for her to give birth to the Antichrist. So that's all of this is going on. And a lot of this probably sounds super familiar. And you know what? The producers of The Exorcist thought so, too. So uh, they sued this production. And <laughs> and sure enough, it was settled for an undisclosed amount. But these guys have some balls because when uh, Exorcist 2 came out, so did Beyond the Door 2. And when Exorcist 3 came out, so did Beyond the Door 3. <laughs> so they oh, just... Whoa. They just wrote it, and I think that they just separated themselves enough legally that they could do it, but everybody made that connection to the first one, so they decided to just ride coattails all the way through. So, just a much worse version of The Exorcist, I give you Beyond the Door. Never seen that one. Wow. Have you, I've, I've only seen the third one. <laughs> <laughs> it was completely lost. <laughs> Um, okay, well, shoot, this one's a tough one because those both sound absolutely terrible. <laughs> um, but I will say, I feel like the horror movies, um, I feel like it's a lot easier to like make a bad horror movie. Um, especially if, you know, part two and part three, riding the coattails of the exorcist. It's like, I, I kind of love the fact that they like, well, you know, everybody's saying it anyway, so let's just let's just keep going with it, you know, let's just ride it out. Um, but just just the way you are, is that what it's called? Yeah. Just the like that sounds like it was really trying really hard to be like a like a heartfelt or like really make some social statement. Yeah. And it just And as work. as Siskel <laughs> said, it was probably quite tone deaf to the actual, you know. To the actual uh, reality of 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 a disabled uh, a disability, 
Um, so I kind of got to just go with that one because it sounds like a real, like horror movies kind of swing and miss all the time. And they're kind of fun because of that. But that sounds like a, a real, uh, a real swing and miss and, and that probably, you know, offended people and like completely like didn't, didn't get it at all. So I'll go with, go with you, Mark, for this one. Awesome. Thank you. That's two wins in a row here on Dueling Decades Whoa. for me. Right. One more, and you know what they call that, Man Crush? A winning streak. I was going to say three <laughs> three wins in a row. Yeah, a turkey. Uh, yeah. The golden sombrero. I'm going to be honest. I'm a little disappointed, Tom, because this was my way in of getting that jacket, and now my arms <laughs> remain bare. Ah, so, shit. Well, it is what it is. You'll have to go to the Goodwill and get a smelly one uh, that way, I guess. So cold. <laughs> it doesn't go away. Let me tell you. <laughs> Tom, tell us. Uh, so you got this, uh, the other video that's coming out on. Yeah, the other video. I don't know. When is this going to air? Do you guys know? It'll probably be after. The new video comes out on, on Monday. So, okay, yeah. which is the 15th. Yeah. So this will be on Wednesday, yeah. the 17th. Cool. So, yeah, uh, the new video just came out uh, for She Ain't Coming Back. And it's actually in true 80s fashion. Uh, you guys said you've, you watched the first music video I put out, Zuma Beach. And it ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger uh, to be continued, you know, total back to the future style, you know. And so the next video uh, that just came out is for the song She Ain't Coming Back. And it picks off right where the last one, uh, you know, left us off. And we see what happens between me, my character, Millie, you know, Million Miler, and the my alien dream girl that I happened to find on the side of the road from the uh, the UFO crash that happened. So, uh, you know, I know everybody's just dying to see what what happened and, you know, if I'm going to end up with her. So you got to go watch both videos, the Zuma Beach video and the brand new She Ain't Coming Back video to see what happens. Very nice. And you could just very easy go over to YouTube search for the name of the song and just put uh, Millie. That's what I did. And oh, it nice. comes right up. Yeah. It's like the, it comes up like three times it's on there. So uh, oh, very cool. Yeah. Millie million miler. She ain't coming back. Zuma beach. I'm sure if you type any of those, you, you'll find them. And you did Zuma beach is the song that you did on the show. The last time you were on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So people should be familiar with it. Exactly. Yeah, that that was fun. Very spontaneous. Yeah. So check that out. And are you go? Are you touring? Are you going to go anywhere soon? Or, you know what? So so plain white tees have been have been playing some shows, um, which has been really nice because obviously that's my my actual job and my actual source of income. So <laughs> to uh, very lucky and blessed to be able to get back out there and you know and and play. It was so crazy there for a while. It's like, man, just I didn't realize how much I took it for granted. Right. Just being able to go and, and you know, have thousands of people screaming and smiling and, you know, singing along. Um, you know, I was doing like a and I still am. I'm doing a week, weekly Facebook live thing where I play a couple songs right here on my couch. And it's uh, it, it's amazing. And it's been a fun way to stay connected with fans. But. Uh, I didn't really realize uh, how much I would I would miss, you know, just being being on stage and and just feeling that real energy of, of a live show. So that's been really nice to get back out with Plain White Tees. Uh, we're working on some new music as well right now, which is is exciting. 
Um, and yeah, in the meantime, I've, I've just been doing the million miler thing, which is super fun. So to answer your question, playing white tees, playing shows, and definitely going to be doing some shows as million miler, my solo project. Uh, definitely going to be taking that on the road uh, next year at some point. Hopefully, um, spring is the goal. Um, yeah, so that's definitely in the works. Uh, till then, I will be doing a virtual concert as Million Miler uh, on December 19th. Um, all of the, the artists on my record label, Humans Were Here, we're all doing a few songs for like a little Christmas show. Oh, so I'll cool. be doing a couple, a couple Million Miler songs as well as a Christmas song. Um, so everybody, if you want to check that out, you can go to humanswerehere.com and buy a, a virtual ticket for the virtual show. And there you can also get the... Uh, cassette tape and the vinyl and all that stuff, t-shirts and everything. So yeah, humanswerehere.com. That's the name of the label. Very cool, man. How many bands do you have on your label? Uh, there's five currently, five current artists. All of them kick ass. <laughs> well, I should hope you'd say that. To us. <laughs> It'd be kind of weird if you're like, well, they're, they're not good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the truly motivating thing to do would say four out of five are amazing and then have all of them try and figure out which one of us needs to step up. <laughs> yeah. Which one does he hate? Who does he, does he hate me? Yeah. Well, dude, that sounds awesome. Uh, again, what we'll do, everybody, if you want a copy of the album and the cassette, because I have both of them, we'll, we'll mail it to you right after Thanksgiving. All you got to do is just follow the three accounts. So it's at Dueling Decades, which hopefully you're already following. So that one's easy. Uh, at uh, Higgy Pop and then million.miler.music is the other one, correct? And you then got just, it, yeah. And then just shoot us uh, a direct message. Tell us who you did that and we'll pick it at the end of the month. We'll send that out to you so you'll have something to listen to for Christmas. You could actually watch Tom a week before Christmas during his show and you can uh, throw this uh, vinyl on your record player, which... I actually don't have, so it kind of sucks that I'm giving up the cassette, but that's okay. <laughs> Dude, I got to just show because people might, you know, in case they're not already on, on board, look how beautiful this freaking uh, vinyl awesome. is. This blue, it's like the coolest color vinyl ever. Neon blue. It's like, but like, it's not just like a neon blue. It's almost like a, a light blue. Like yeah, it's, I, can see. I think they honestly messed up in the production of these. Because they said like, oh, I hope you're okay with this color. It was a little bit different than the sample. And I was like, oh, yeah, it looks amazing. So, And so, it's yeah, got like pieces go. in it too, right? Yeah. I think when I pulled out, yeah, like I said, my daughter's got it in there. So it's got like these little you like. You can see like a little bit of like a dark color, like a little yeah. bit of like. A, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Looking. Yeah. It's very like yeah. Im imperfect. Yeah. Tom, show the picture of the inside too. Because you have yeah. like all this retro stuff on that. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got the boom box, the guitar on the wall got a bunch of like vhs tapes and a nintendo over here and everything yeah and then of course the the only difference between million miler and tom from plain white tees gotta have that mustache you know <laughs> mustache it's kind of like a it's kind of like a shit stash it's like it's like you know not like a full-on mustache it's just like like the high school kid that can barely grow it you know? how, how many days does that take you to grow in um it's you know honestly not very many i wish it was more but i don't know as i'm getting older i gotta shave all the damn time it sucks i save time when i'm million miler because i don't have to do the whole the whole thing well, what are you gonna do when you have back-to-back -back shows with million miler and plain white tees 
Yeah, it's like, what do I do? I rock the stash for the tees, or do I shave and be, you know, for for million for the million miler songs? I think that in reality, million miler is just me. It's so like, I mean, I know you guys have freaking listened to it and everything. It's it's a it's me straight up. Like it's almost more me than plain white tees at this point. So uh, I think either way, whether I have the stash or no stash. Uh, I think the uh, I think either way, whether I'm doing the million miler songs or plain white tea songs, I think in reality it doesn't matter. But it's just a fun little game for myself to be like, ooh, doing million miler, I gotta have the mustache. But I think if I didn't have it, it wouldn't matter. It would still be fun as hell. We used to call that when I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, we'd go out to the field. We it's called a field stash because everyone just grows it for you know a couple of weeks. But we also called it the uh, the scumbag. She was like, yeah, oh, you got I your mean, scumbag on. I was like, yeah. And there were sure, always... I mean, it's, you know, porno stash. That's porno another good stash. one. You know, there, yeah, there mustache. Would is... Some gunny that would find you and be like, what is that piece of shit on your face? Shave that off. Yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, honestly, even like internally, I don't even know how I feel about mustaches. Like, I respect them because it's like, <laughs> kind of takes balls to rock a mustache, you know, By because itself. they are kind of like, By they are polarized. Yeah. 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 By itself, it's rough. Like, uh, my wife actually mentioned that. She's like, well, this month, you should just shave this off and keep the top. I was like, no. <laughs> it's it's already like a, like one of them, like George Carlin, like the fucking look at me thing. You know, it, it yeah. kind of feels like that. But having it by itself, that's a really, like, fucking look at me. And you, eh, I can't do it. You might have to do it, dude. In honor of Millie, <laughs> as you're giving away... The albums you might need. You're more 1980, like without the goatee. This is more 1880. Ah, that's true. Yeah. You do have yeah. like the little. He's the yeah, kind of guy who boxes true. like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <exactly>. hey. <laughs> but in keeping with the tradition, I am actually because the last uh, contestant, the last time you were on, ordered your album. I am going to order your vinyl because I do have a record player. So, oh, unbelievable! So, hey, Joe, I, thank you. Uh, well. You know what? I'll sign it for you. What do you want me to write on, on that one? The media king of the north. <laughs> yeah, Amity, Amityville. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Whatever you deem fit for this non-member. <laughs> uh, you're, that's that's a good call. There you go. Members only. You're you're the new. We're you know <laughs> the, you're starting the your member. Own. There you yeah, go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Tom, thanks again, bro, for coming on. It was a lot of fun. Please come back again and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, maybe we'll just show up at your, uh, your virtual show. Hell yeah. I I love that. I mean, you guys, yeah, we try to make it, we'll, we'll make it like fun. Like we'll, uh, do giveaways and stuff because we can see people actually commenting and talk, you know, so we'll answer questions and we try to make it like as, uh, interactive as possible. What service do you use for that? It'd be fun if you guys are on there. What's that? What service do you use for that when you guys are going to do the live concert? Uh, I, I, we did one last Christmas and it was, we just did it on like a YouTube live. Oh, okay. And then, so that way we could, we could leave it published for a couple of weeks for anybody that, you know, maybe buys a ticket, but is busy that day doing family stuff or whatever. So right. we leave it live through the end of the year and then we take it down. Nice. All right. 1219. I'm putting it down on the calendar. What time is that going to yeah. be at? Uh, four central. Okay. So that's, Sweet. I think it's five here. We're only one hour difference. Yeah. Five. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I will make an effort to definitely, cause those are cool. I actually like, 
as much as I like going to regular shows, I think the virtual ones are cool because you do get the one-on-one with an artist is a little bit better. You know, and it, it's just show. like a different, it's a different thing. It's like, if you love an artist or, you know, it's like seeing them in a different environment, yeah, you know, really. where it's maybe a little awkward at times, maybe it's a little loose at times, you know? Yeah. It's just a different experience. It is definitely cool, <laughs> but dude, thanks again. Have a great night. And uh, yeah, we'll see you soon. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys. As always uh, loved, loved hanging and, and loved uh, being a part of it. So thank you. Dig the shirt too, by the way. Oh yeah. Yeah. Did you guys see this the new trailer? Yeah, I did. The new trailer for season four. Oh man. I can't wait. Can't it's wait. Good. Yep. All right. Good night guys. All see right. Ya. Take care. All right, Mark, you Thanks can, so you can do a close. All right, jewelers. Well, unfortunately it looks like we're going to have to end this episode right here. I want to say thank you to our guest judge, Tom Higginson for showing up for the third time here on the show. Uh, and uh, Mr. Joe Finley for giving me such a good competition on this one. Uh, Joe, why don't you tell everybody what you have coming up on Miscast Commentary? Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, Miscast Commentary uh, going well as you are listening to this episode. Uh, you could access our commentary of Cabin Boy, so sorry. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we've, we've got some fun ones coming up and then December is going to be full, uh, full of Christmas based, uh, fun and frolic as it usually is. So that's what we got going on. And as always, uh, go check out my YouTube page, Miscast Joe to see, to help me justify why I'm drowning in microphones and cameras and stuff like that. So my wife doesn't get so mad at me. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right, Duelers. Well, if you've missed an episode, head on over to our website, DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, everywhere that uh, podcasts are found. So until next time, Duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Be heard.